It's good to be back. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse 13 because of the way this leads into uh, the sermon text this morning. I'm going to be reading and preaching from the New King James. Please now give your undivided attention to the reading of this portion of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ... may be ashamed, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, we are thankful that you have given to us your Holy Word. We're thankful that we have this treasure that we can read and study. And Lord, we would pray that you would make this time now as we hear the proclamation of your Word a time of your power. We are thankful that the Bible is the sword of the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit so effectively wields that sword. Father, we are asking for you to abundantly bless the proclamation of your word to us. Father, we do ask this for our benefit, for we are your children. But we would ask primarily that you would do this even for your own glory. We pray in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Peter wrote this first inspired letter to Christians who were living in Asia Minor and they were being persecuted for their faith. They were being slandered. They were being threatened. And they were Some of them were being beaten. Now, Peter sought to encourage these believers, these suffering Christians, by repeatedly pointing them to Christ. And the example of this is found in the text that we just read, verse 18. Hear this again. For Christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 18 begins with for. That is a conjunction that connects this to the preceding section, which is verses 13 through 17. And in that section, Peter is exhorting these believers to suffer for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 18, he gives them incentive to do just that. Notice the word also in the text, for Christ also suffered. You will bear your sufferings for Christ best when you find that you have fellowship with them in the Lord Jesus himself. In this text, Peter presents four great truths about the suffering of Christ. First of all, that Christ suffered once. Then that Christ suffered for sins. Then that he suffered the just for the unjust. And finally, he suffered to bring us to God. It's that last point that needs to be emphasized. What is the primary reason for why Christ died? To bring you and me to God. That's the great goal of his suffering. We need to understand where it is that Christ is taking us. Where is he bringing us? He's already brought us to God if we're converted, but he's still bringing us to the Father, isn't he? Let me ask you a question. Um, Have you ever gotten in your car and started driving and made a very familiar turn, and then you realize, wait a minute, that's not the way I wanted to go? I see something. Okay. I'm on my way to the seminary day after day, come out to the main road, and I'm so used to making that left-hand turn that if I'm not aware of my goal, where I'm to end up, I will undoubtedly make a wrong turn. And you will undoubtedly make a wrong turn as well if you forget why it is the primary reason for why Christ suffered. Notice it says that Christ also suffered once. This is a very important theological point, that he only suffered once. The point here is that his suffering expresses the fact that his death fully satisfied God's justice. Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 26, reads this way. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of another, 
he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in other words, what Peter is saying, what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that there is no other and no further sacrifice that's needed. You cannot add anything to our Savior's atoning work. It's one of the reasons why I'm glad I'm not Roman Catholic. If you want me to talk to you about that after the service, I'll be glad to explain that maybe in a little more detail. Did you know that Roman Catholics believe that every time the Mass is offered, that they believe Christ is being sacrificed again? Blasphemous. Blasphemous. We know that our Savior suffered being tortured by a whip, thorns, nails, and the wrath of His Heavenly Father. He suffered once, not only in body, but also in soul. What was his cry of agony on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Christ was in agony in the garden, the eve before he hung on that cross, that intense agony, Anguish of soul that he was enduring there in the garden wasn't because he felt the physical suffering that he was about to endure. No, he was keenly aware of the suffering within his soul as he hung on that cross. Isaiah 53, verse 11. He, that's God the Father, will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Would see the travail of the soul of his son and be satisfied. In fact, I believe that the Sunday school teacher one time made a reference to a sermon by Paul Washer to that effect. Isn't that not true? This is a very important doctrine that we understand. Christ, as he hung on that cross, bore the infinite wrath of his Father. All that he suffered once fully paid the price for your redemption. But understand this, and I think you understand this. The intensity of the agony of his suffering upon the cross is incomprehensible. There's no way that we as finite human beings, can have any real concept of what Christ suffered on the cross. There's only one group of people who have any concept of the intensity of Christ's suffering on the cross. That's the people who are suffering right now in hell. They have some concept of the intensity of our Savior's suffering when he hung on the cross and bore his Father's infinite wrath. But Peter goes on and says that Christ suffered once 
for sins. Now, the word here that's translated for is not the same word that's translated for at the beginning of the verse. At the beginning of the verse, it's a conjunction. This next um, word that's translated for is a preposition, and what it is referring to is why is it that Christ died? Why is it that he died? He died on account of sin. He died because of sin. The idea here is that Christ suffered his father's displeasure and also his wrath against sins. In the suffering of Christ, we see God's estimation of sin. Christ suffered for your sins, past, present, and future. He suffered for your sins, my sins, and the sins of all the elect until he returns in glory. He suffered the infinite wrath of God the Father. Larger Catechism question 38 asks the question, why was it necessary for the mediator to be God? A part of that answer that's given is it was necessary for the mediator to be God so that his deity could sustain his humanity as he bore the infinite wrath of God. What is half of anything that's infinite? Think this through. What is half of anything that is infinite? I see some of you got that immediately. That's good. There's no such thing as half of infinity. There's no such thing. That means that Christ had to pay for all of your sin. Or he could pay for none of it. He paid it all. I was surprised when I was sitting in a PCA church and one of the ruling elders said that he believed that every time we sin, we added to the suffering of Christ. That every time we sin, we added to the suffering of Christ. I should have just jumped up and said, blasphemy. Read the Lauder Catechism, question 38. I could tell you other horrible things I've heard about the suffering of Christ. But understand this. Christ bore the infinite wrath of God the Father. There's nothing that you could ever have done that would have added to that suffering. It is interesting that the word here that's translated for... is used several times in the Old Testament in connection with those atoning sacrifices. 
I think it's very likely that Peter would have expected his readers to have understood that he was pointing to the fact that Christ's death was a sacrificial death. Which suggests the substitutionary nature of his death. Which leads us to the next point. That Christ suffered the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. This word here, this is a different word now, this translated for, the just for the unjust. This is a word, that it's a preposition that over and over again in the New Testament and even outside the New Testament that refers to a substitution. A lot of times it means in the place of. And clearly in this context, that understanding is demanded. That Christ suffered in the place of his people. He suffered in your place. Stephen Kalki, in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, argues against the substitutionary suffering and death of Christ. According to him, it is an attack on the loving character of God the Father. He asks, how is it possible for someone to come to believe that at the cross this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? He describes the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ as a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. And this man would call himself an evangelical. In this case, the emphasis would be on the jelly. Why does he have this twisted view of the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. Why? What's foundation of all this? He has a twisted view of God. Oh yes, God is a God of love. John tells us in his first epistle, God is love. We affirm that. We believe that. But understand this. God will not sacrifice his holiness, and his righteousness on the altar of his love. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he might be just and the justifier. 
We have not merely been given a pardon. We have not merely received the forgiveness of sins because God said, okay, you've believed in my son, you've repented, and now I'm willing to let bygones be bygones. That is not the biblical doctrine of the atonement. God's justice had to be satisfied. And the only way that he could be both just and the justifier would be for him to punish sin. Either to punishment in the sinner or in a substitute. God's justice did indeed demand that sin be punished. And he punished it, he punished it in his son. It is true that God saved us from our sins. It's also true that he saved us from himself. He saved us from himself. Now, Christ's substitutionary death for those who are unjust. By the way, if you haven't figured that out, that's you and me. It shows that there's nothing, nothing that Christ saw in you that would merit his suffering and death. I know you already know that. The sufficiency of Christ's suffering, which includes its severity and his substitutionary death, and suffering for you should motivate you to live a Christian life for the glory of Christ regardless of the opposition of the world. Christ asks you to sip from a cup of suffering. He drank an ocean of suffering for you. The measure of Christ's suffering is also the measure of his love for you. I may have even said this before in another sermon. I don't remember. But if you want to have some sense of the intensity of Christ's love for you, it's measured by the intensity of his suffering on the cross for you. You think that through. Think that through. There are Christians who I run across once in a while, and they seem to have a very difficult time believing that God loves them. Or they might even believe, well, God loves that person over there, that Christian over there, more than he loves me. The measure of the intensity of his love for you is the intensity of his suffering in your place. Get that. Understand that. 
I dare say it, revel in that. If you believe in Christ, then His sufferings are regarded as yours. His sufferings have taken away the guilt of your sins. His sufferings silenced forever the threats of hell. And His suffering has opened wide the gates of heaven for you. We come now to Peter's last point. That He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God. Now this ultimate purpose for the suffering of Christ is often neglected by focusing on secondary purposes. Yes, the suffering of Christ has brought us forgiveness of our sins. Yes, the suffering of Christ has brought us into fellowship with those of like precious faith. Yes, the suffering of Christ has brought us to the point where we now have a Heavenly Father who provides for us. We do recognize that through His death, through His suffering, we've been delivered from hell and the eventual lake of fire. We also understand that because of His suffering in our place, we have the prospect of heaven. These are all reasons for why Christ suffered. But they are not the reason for why Christ suffered. Christ saved you from your sins so that you could have fellowship with God. That's what the text says. To bring you into fellowship With God the Father. Your sins separated you from God. But Christ died to save you from your sins in order to reconcile you to God. I think I'm going to hear an echo from the Sunday school lesson this morning. Think that through. And the truth of the matter is, whenever you sin now, it blocks your fellowship with God, doesn't it? What did the psalmist say in Psalm 66, 18? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Peter wrote to those who were tempted to live more like their pagan neighbors in order to avoid persecution. I remember hearing the story. I guess it's a true story. young man went off to college, came back from because it was maybe fall break. Somebody asked him, well, how's everything going to college? He said, oh, great. Nobody's found out I'm a Christian yet. Shame on that. Shame on that young man. 
But you see, to continue to identify themselves with Christ through righteous living would cost them. They would continue to face the slander, the threats, and the beatings. But not identifying with Christ through righteous living. Excuse me. But not identifying themselves with Christ by living ungodly would cost them something far worse. Fellowship with God. How much value do you place on fellowshipping How much value? Christ placed so much value on your fellowship with God the Father that he suffered and died in your place. Notice the last part of the verse. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. In my version, New King James, Spirit at the end of the verse has a capital S. If you're going, if you have the ESV in front of you, you'll see it's a small s. Well, we could split hairs on that one all day, I guess. I've gone back and forth on this. I finally reached my own conclusion. But rather than getting tied up on some detail here. Peter's point is actually quite clear. And that is he is explaining how it is that Christ having suffered and died can bring you to God. It's because he lives. He is alive. You see, if he were still dead, if he hadn't raised from the tomb, he could not bring you to God. He is your living Savior. And he's not your Savior only because he provided salvation. He did do that. But primarily, he's your Savior because he did actually indeed save you. That's why we should think of him as our Savior is because he does indeed save his people. He actually did save you and he brought you to God. And he is still bringing you to God through many obstacles, troubled waters, hostile territory, and by his own divine sovereign power, he is bringing you. There are many Christians who have completely missed the point of Christianity. Well, they're thankful for the many benefits of salvation. But they have very little desire for fellowship with God. 
Now, before you partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you this question. Are you one of those Christians? Do you have doctrine, but it's without devotion to God? Do you actually have an eagerness to spend time with God in private worship? Do you find that you have time for your own personal pursuits, but you have very little time for God? Those times when you do read the Bible and pray, do they actually bring you into fellowship with God? Or is it just a mere religious exercise? You see, if you have missed the point of Christ's suffering, you have missed the point of Christianity and the point of this supper. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful text. Lord, may this be that which you would drive deep into our hearts. Lord, may you plant it deep and may it bear much fruit. Father, we pray that we would put great value upon our fellowship with you because of what it cost our dear Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name.